Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 2. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. And uh, while you're turning there, I'd like you to think about this question. How would you like God to use you? What is it that you would like God to do with you? Would you like him to lead you so that you lead someone to Christ? I know I sound like I'm reading. I'm not. I'm trying to think and talk at the same time. Sometimes that's hard. Well, let me ask you something. Would, would, would you like, as you look out at your family, as you look out at your friends, as you look out at your neighbors, and, and if you're a student and you look out at your friends at school, would you like God to be able to use you to be a witness to them, to, to be a help to them? Would you like them to know eternal life? Would you like them to know the Savior that you know? Would you like them to know the relationship with God that you know? Do you see people out in the world struggling with the, with the sin or struggling with the trials and the tri- tribulation that are going on? Or maybe even they're just going along and everything's just fine, but they don't know God. Would you like God to be able to use you? Would you like God to be able to use you when someone is is in need of help? Would you like to be there for them? Because we know, and I think you know, there's times that sometimes that someone comes to you and they they ask you a question and, and you just seem to know the answer. You just say that little Nehemiah prayer just real quick, Lord, please help me. And then this answer comes out of nowhere and it's a help to them. And would you like God to be able to use you? Well, this message today, we know that when we draw close to God, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Amen. But this message today, as positive as it is, there's also a warning in here. Because if we want to be used of God, there are some things we want to do to avoid being replaced. You see, God doesn't have to use you. You know, God said, I can make the rocks cry out and praise to me. God can use someone down the street. God can use someone across the country. God can use someone next to you. He doesn't have to have you. But we serve God because we want to. And we, we, we draw close. To, we want to be used to God. I would hope that that's your desire. If it's not, maybe God will speak to your heart today. But I've been... Preaching on the still small voice. I've been preaching, you know, Elijah, he, he heard the still small voice. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the wind. God was in that still small voice. You know, we, we get out there in the world and we need to learn to listen for that still small voice. That was time alone with God. And I preached about knowing God's will. It's a hard thing to know God's will because it doesn't always come on a billboard. Sometimes it'll come on a sign. It depends on how he's working on you. But you can't claim it. You can't, you can't point to the Bible and say, right here. It says it's going to point it out on the billboard. But God speaks to your heart in that still small voice. And knowing God's will, we know his word. We know his ways. And, and we, we know those different things. And I prayed on that. And I, I, I preached on that. And I preached on prayer mattering. Your prayers really do matter, those prayers that we hold up for people. 
I'm not saying this is a series, but I'm just kind of saying this is where this is going. If we want to stay in God's will, God doesn't have to use us. He can replace us. And if we want to avoid being replaced, then pay attention to the message today. I'm going to show you how to avoid being replaced, how God could continue to use you. And as we look at it today, I want you to think about these three things to avoid being replaced. Number one, you need to have a personal relationship instead of religion. You follow me on that? Number two, you need to have a right response to God's rebuke. And number three, you need to realize that the result, the results that can happen if you don't do these two things are replacement and a loss of revelation. Follow me, if you will. Look at uh, verse number 12. You remember we talked about Samuel, we talked about Hannah and Elkanah, and, and in the middle of this story in, in about Samuel, we see the condition of the priests that are currently attending to the altar. And it's a really a contrast between Samuel, who we know to be the one that anoints King David and anoints King Saul and that walks before God all his days, it's really a contrast with what we're going to see here. Look here at verse number 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And then look at this next verse, just sprinkled in there for contrast. It says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. So we see here the sins of the priests. People make the journey to Shiloh and they see the tabernacle of God. And that tabernacle is where God dwelt on earth with his people. That cloud descended from heaven and filled up the inner, the inner court, the inner behind the veil of the tabernacle there at the ark of God. That's where the ark of God resided. That's where man's relationship with God was. It wasn't like we have now where Jesus died for our sins. All of this pointed, all the tabernacle sacrifices, the sacrifices that took place and all of that pointed toward what God would do later in Jesus Christ. We're not going to go into all that, but as you think about someone that goes to Shiloh and they have their offering and they have their lamb and they're dragging that lamb behind them, the, the one that they raised and the one that they, they set aside for God and the man looked at it and he said, here's the spotless lamb. This is for God. And he would go to the place in Shiloh and he would see the tabernacle there laid out and he would see the priest making the offering and he would take that lamb up there and be offered because he knew about his sins. 
We all know about our sins. Somebody else may not know about your sins, but you and God know your sins. And as he went up there and he brought that lamb forward, that lamb was to take those sins, was to be an atonement for his sins. God said the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes an atonement. That blood had to be shed for his sins. And he takes that offering up to, it's good to see you. He takes that offering up to the tabernacle, and he hands it to, over to the priest, and there's his offering for sin. And the priest was to take that lamb and cut it up, and that fat was to be burned and offered up to God. And he's made the journey, and he's here, and he's about to get right with God. And here comes the priest's servant. As that fat, as it's being laid out and everything's about to happen, the priest's servant comes in, and he's got his flesh hook in his hand. Think of it as a big fork. You've done barbecue. And he takes that thing and he goes and scoops it out. And he says, wait, wait. I've been raising this lamb for over a year. I've, we've, we've, this is my sacrifice. It just don't, don't fail to burn the fat. Put the fat on the altar for God, for, for my sin. Put the fat on the altar. And he said, no, the priest is entitled to it. He's not going to have the sodden meat. We're going to have it raw. And you're not, you know. He says, don't fail to give God his part. Because they were entitled to a part. God made a way in Leviticus chapter 7. He, talked, he gave them the hindquarter. He gave them the breast, a wave offering. And those were given to the priest. And as many people as were going to Shiloh, there was plenty to supply them. And they'd take, they took that offering away from them and said, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of... There is a lot in history, a lot of preachers, a lot of priests, a lot of, a lot of anybody, a lot of men that have turned people away from God because of their sin. I remember growing up in the 80s before I knew too much about church. I remember hearing about the TV evangelists and, and their greed for money and then the, the corruption that was going on. What happened with Jimmy Swaggart? Oh, I could name names. And there's been some now. There was even a preacher. It was Jack Howell's uh, Jack Hyle's son-in-law that, that messed around with a young girl. And they turn people away from the church of God because they say, well, if it's that corrupt, I don't want anything to do with it. I, I tell you, anything that man touches, he corrupts. It's God that does the purifying. It's not man that does the purifying. And when you think about these priests, you say, well, how could they do that? How could they, how could they be there at the tabernacle of God? And how could they see all the instruments of God every day? And how could they... How could they steal the offering from God? See, that wasn't all that they did. Look over in verse number 22. It said, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They lay with the women that assembled at the tabernacle, the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And here they were corrupting the women too. In the biblical sense. So their sin was very great. How could they be so close to the things of God and be committing these sins? And I tell you that whether you're a prophet, priest, or king, this can happen to you as a Christian. We still have to have the flesh and the spirit that battles against each other. And I've told you plenty about that. 
the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's a battle that constantly takes place. And if you give in and you walk in the flesh, you, you can have your conscience seared. You can begin to do things that are against God. So these priests, these young men, they grew up. They grew up at the tabernacle. They grew up making the sacrifices and the offerings. And they grew up learning about the things of God. And they knew all about the things of God. Kind of like someone who, who grows up in church. I've been going to church my whole life. But the Bible says in verse number one, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial and they knew not the Lord. Got a little behind myself. I can tell you, it's possible to be around the things of God, but not know God. It's possible to go to church every Sunday or every time the doors are open. It's possible to know your Bible backwards and forwards, but not know God. And this could happen if you don't maintain your relationship with God. Whether you're a priest, a pastor, or a father and a mother, whether you're in church every Sunday. I want to read you a little passage. It's a little bit lengthy, I think. I might could have abbreviated, but I want you all to follow me on this. This was written by a man. He wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. And it's a book for preachers, for ministers. But I think it's also a book for anybody else. And he talks about, about... being in seminary, he said, it was a moment of greater insight than I realized at the time. I look back and see it as a sweet moment of divine rescue, just the kind of grace that was to be the passion of the ministry to which I had been called. I was exegeting my way through Romans. He, he talks about going through the Greek. He talks about setting up his notebook, and he's got it clipped and flipped on the backside. He said, I had taken a bound legal-sized notebook and cut a square out of the top right-hand corner of every third page so I could glue a page of the Greek text on both sides of the page. I would then fill the pages with corresponding exegetical notes, sermon outlines, and illustrations. It was an exercise that brought all of my recently taught and newly acquired ministry skills together. I found the exercise challenging and exciting. I felt proud that my notebook was filled with my notes on Romans. I was engulfed in a intoxicating world of language syntax and theological argument. Well, good for him. He said, I labored over tenses, context, objects, and connectors. I studied etymologies and Pauline vocabulary. I tried to connect every minute detail to the overarching intent of the author. I consulted all the experts, weighing insight over insight and opinion against opinion. Countless hours of discipline, private study were represented by page upon page of legal-sized page notes. It was all very rewarding. One evening, hours into exegeting the next section of Romans, it hit me. I had spent hours each day for months studying perhaps the most extensive and gorgeous exposition on the gospel that has ever been written, and I had been fundamentally untouched by its message. The message had little impact on me. It had been all grammar and syntax, theological ideas and logical arguments. It had been a massive intellectual exercise, but almost completely devoid of spiritual power. I can remember staring at my ink-filled pages. They seemed distant and blurry, somehow not attached to real life, somehow not having anything to do with me. 
No, I wasn't delusional. I had written all of it, but it all seemed detached from me. My real life, my marriage, my struggles with sin, my past, my future, my deepest hopes, dreams, and fears. I stared at the page, and it seemed impossible that I could have done all this work when it had been little more than an assignment for a class, for a grade, in pursuit of a degree. Do you get the picture? The man has spent time in God's word and he has gone backwards and forwards and he has looked at the Greek, he has looked at the syntax and everything. But it wasn't hitting. And I tell you, that can happen to you. It doesn't mean that you have to get all caught up in the Greek to do it. You can just get caught up in Bible study. Man, I've been in some Bible study where you walk away and boy, you know how many bricks bricks were laid on the second temple and you know know what year and, and all this place and all these roads that were in place and everything, none of it, none of it hits you in the heart because none of it points you to Jesus Christ. And Lord, help me the day that I don't point you to Jesus Christ, even though I know that you know him and you do know him. I know a lot of you. It's not hard to point to everybody in the church here and say, I know But God knows your heart. And God knows when you're drifting, even when you don't. He said, I personally experienced what can happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets reduced to a series of theological ideas coupled with all the skills necessary to access those ideas. Bad things happen when maturity is more defined by knowing than it is by being. Amen. He said, danger is afloat when you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they are meant to free. That was Paul David Tripp. So it can happen when your relationship with God is based on a distant prayer that you said. Now, I believe in confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but I also believe that your walk goes on for the rest of your life. I also believe that this world can pull you away from God. That though you may be saved, you have eternal security. You can be walking along in your walk and just get a little further, a little further, a little further. Until you look around and all of a sudden you realize. You know, one time at the mall, Megan used to wander off. One time we let her wander off and we said, yeah, she's going to realize that we're not there. But we watched her. That little joker, she didn't. (laughs) But what she was supposed to do was turn around and say, where's mom and dad? And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to turn around and say, Lord, where are you? And the Lord's standing. I'm right here where you left me. I'm right here where you left me. Hang on to that relationship. It said people abhorred the sacrifice. Don't let anyone take you away from your relationship with God. He, they caused other people to stumble. And then we see verse number 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord being a child girded with a linen ephod. So religion versus Relationship. Number two, have a right response to God's rebuke. I want you to look at it here in verse number 22. It said, now Eli was very old. He was about 98, I think. 
Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And then verse 26, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with them. I know I'm quoting a lot of stuff today, but this is good. Matthew Henry, he said they had no regard either to his authority or to his affection, which was to them an evident token of perdition. It was because the Lord would slay them. They had... They had long hardened their hearts, and now God, in a way of righteous judgment, hardened their hearts and seared their consciences and withheld them from the grace they had resisted and forfeited. You know what searing is, right? You put the, you throw the steak on the hot stove and you sear the outside flesh and you sear the other side of the flesh, but the inside will stay pink, untouched, unchanged. You can, you can sear your conscience to the point where you don't even feel any conviction about what you're doing. You know, people the, the, everywhere in popular society, follow your heart, you know. What's, what's your heart telling you? What's the inside telling you? The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, it's when our, we turn our heart. The Bible talks about turning your heart toward God. And, and it's something that you have to do. It's not something that just happens. You wake up and consult your heart. Oh, I'll wear this illustration out. And heart, am I going to go to church today? <laughs> I just wear it out. But the, I mean, the fact is, it's on anything. If you wait till you're at the crossroads to decide what kind of morals you're going to have, you're going to go down the other road. You're going to go down the convenient one. On the matter of searing, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that happens to those that aren't saved, that have no conscience about what they're doing. But I, can, I tell you, you can numb yourself to the calling of the Holy Spirit, to the convicting of the Holy Spirit. Here's an illustration from the Old Testament when King Amaziah won a battle against the Edomites and he brought back their gods and set them up to be his god. It says in 2 Chronicles 25, 14, Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the children of Seir and set them up to be his gods and bowed down himself before them and burned incense unto them. And this is in relation to, as we look at it, Eli is telling them, but God has hardened their heart, just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened toward God's people. God just hardened it so that the judgment would come on him. And it said in uh, verse number two, uh, 
verse 15, Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? And it came to pass, as he talked with him, that the king said unto him, Art thou made the king's counsel? Forbear. Why shouldest thou be smitten? And then the prophet forbear and said, I know that God hath determined to destroy thee because thou hast done this and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. They were rebuked by Eli and it was a rather weak rebuke, but they didn't listen to him because God had hardened their heart, said the Lord would slay them. And then there's the result of replacement and loss of revelation. When when the things of God become too familiar with you, when they lose their awe, when, when your relationship with God begins to devolve into just information or just this God that you know or just this God that you serve, but you don't have that daily walk with him. And that's what I'm really driving at here. Your relationship with God is a daily walk. It's a daily in prayer. It's a daily in the word. It's, it's a daily being washed. But when you... When you begin to drift and you begin to wander, and there's, there's results of replacement and loss of revelation. And I asked the question when we started, how would you like to, for God to use you? Who do you know that you wish God would give you the words to speak to, that you would have the power of God when you speak to them, that, that they would have the conviction, that they would come to know Christ as their Savior? But for these men, let's look at it. Verse number 27, And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, talking about Levi, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father and all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Verse 29, pay attention. Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. Listen to this. And honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves, yourselves, yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me should be lightly esteemed. And then he goes on to tell them how they'll be cut off and how both sons will die on one day as a sign. So when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and God was setting up the law and the ordinances and it go back to Eli giving the rebuke to his sons. It was kind of a weak rebuke. Nothing came out of it. And God took the offering very seriously. God took the tabernacle very seriously. When they were setting it up over in Leviticus 10.1, Leviticus 10.1, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Aaron was the first priest, he was Moses' brother, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. It was an incense that God hadn't designated. He had a special formula for the fire that he wanted offered. 
And they, they took the, the wrong kind. They took strange fire for the offering. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Remember, the soul that sinned, they shall die. God had set it up. You know, uh, when, when they sinned, there was death. And then verse number three is about the hardest. And then Moses said unto Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And the hard part was Aaron holding his peace. His two sons had just died offering the strange fire. No sympathy. And we see in contrast, we see Eli warning them. This thing that I hear of the people. How many conversations did it take before Eli got to the point where he even talked to him? And I'm going to tell you something in a minute, and I'm not trying to find new stuff. I, I don't like doing that. I like getting confirmation, but I didn't get much confirmation on what I'm about to tell you. But when you look at, when you look at uh, verse 29, and he says, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings... It looks to me like God accused Eli along with his sons. And I got to thinking about that. And there's another verse that I want to show you. Look over at verse number, uh, chapter number four, verse number 18. This is after Eli's sons died and the messenger comes and tells him about his sons and tells him about the ark. Verse 18, and it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break and he died for he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. I'm on my own here, but I want to share it with you because y'all ain't going to kick me out. I just speculate a little bit, and I'm, I, I'm emphasizing that I'm just kind of looking between the lines. So I may not be right. God knows Eli's heart. God knows where he was. Matthew Henry said Eli was probably a righteous father that, that just, he didn't rebuke his sons hard enough. But when I read that and I saw that Eli was heavy and I thought about how they were getting the fat before and they were getting the meat beforehand and they were having the choicest of it, and and in the prophet, he says to make yourselves fat. I just kind of wonder if while Eli was training those little boys, I just kind of wonder if Eli might have taken a shortcut or two. Because, you know, the sins that we commit as parents, and this is why I bring it up, the sins that we commit as parents, those little ones, our kids will magnify them. Now, bad boys come out of good stock. We see that in Samuel the prophet, or we see that. We, we see that his two sons were, were taking bribes and stuff like that. So you can take that how you want. But the lesson in that is the example that we set, you know, as parents. You know, the, the examples that we set to other people. I just wonder if Eli didn't take a little shortcut, maybe with the food. And they took that, but they went further and they started taking shortcut with the women. And whatever else they took shortcuts with. I'm telling you that. That's not Bible. I'm just reading between the lines. But it's so important for us to maintain our relationship with God. And if that was the case with Eli, it was so important for him to maintain the proper order of service. And to maintain his own relationship with God. He knew that God would judge. 
says in 1 Samuel 2.30, For them that honor me will I, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, But I keep my body under subjection and bring it into subjection. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest it by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I, I can tell you as a preacher, <laughs> it's a fear for me. That if I get out of line with God, that I get up in front of you people and that God has left me. You want to know about a bad dream? A bad dream is when I read about Samson and he, you know, he's, he's been a Nazarite. He's kept his Nazarite vow and he's fought off hundreds of men. I mean strong men and he's taken them down and he's taken down whole armies. And all his life he's won battles and he's defeated the enemy. And then Samson, you know, Delilah aside... He gives in to his weakness or whatever, and his weakness was women, but he gives in to his weakness, and she cuts his hair. And, and before that, she had asked him so many times, you know, and he told her this story, that story, and every time he kind of woke up, she'd already tried it. So I don't know why he thought it was different this time, or if somebody just maybe wrote it for Samson. But that last time, he told her his heart, and when she knew that it was all his heart, she cut his hair. And when the men showed up, she said, the Philistines be upon thee. And they said, Samson got up and he said, I will go out as at times before, but knew not that the spirit of God had departed. Oh, that's a fear. And let me tell you something. When you're telling the gospel to somebody, you're saying words. When you tell somebody about God, you're saying words. Just as much as Richard Dawkins does when he writes his book about not they're not being a God or just as much as anybody else writes about something. But when the power of God is behind it, he's the one that moves the heart. He's the one that speaks directly to you. He's the one that moves on you. God can use you, but you can't use God. And that's the thing about Eli is that God wasn't using them. They were using him. And they got replaced. God says over here and uh, look at uh, verse number 35. He says, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. It's also a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But we, and uh, if, you, if you're asking who the priest was, could have been Samuel, could have been Zadok. Uh, Zadok's family was faithful. Even all the time that, they, that Israel turned away, Zadok's family was faithful. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and morsel of bread. And shall say, put me, I pray thee, into one, one of the priest's office that I may eat a piece of bread. And they'll come begging. But Paul says, I keep my body under subject, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest it by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That ought to be a ready concern of one of ours. Second Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the Christ, name of Christ, depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. As uh, there was a missionary to China, his name was Eric Little. And there's a quote from him. It says, we are all missionaries. 
wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to Christ or we repel them from Christ. Do you want God to use you? And Eric, Eric Little knew what he was talking about. He was an Olympic runner. Maybe y'all saw the movie Chariots of Fire. I got to admit, I never saw the movie. I, I, I'd always see the men running on the beach, and I was like, big deal. That looked like a long, boring movie. But just recently, I learned what was involved behind that movie. And this man, Eric Little, during the summer of 1924, the Olympics were post, hosted at the city of Paris, and Little was a committed Christian who felt that Sunday was the Lord's day, and therefore he refused to run on Sunday with the consequence that he was forced to withdraw from the 100-meter race, his best event. Now, Eric Little, was, he was big in Scotland. They'd see him race, and, and about halfway, and one of them said, to the, one man said to the other, he said, he's not doing real good. And he said, oh, he hadn't dropped his head back yet. They said that when he ran the race and he got toward the end, his head would fall back and his mouth would go wide open, and he would just pour on the steam. Eric Little himself said, I run. They said, what's your strategy? He said, well, in the first 200 meters, because he ended up running a 400 meter, he said, in the first 200 meters, I run as fast as I can. And then in the second half, I asked God to help me run faster. (laughs) But he said the schedule had been published several months earlier and his decision was made well before the games began. Little spent the intervening months training for the 400 meters, an event event in which he had previously excelled. Even so, his success in the 400 meter was largely unexpected. The day a 400 meters race came, and as Little went to the starting blocks, an American masseur slipped a piece of paper into Liddell's hand with a quotation from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he had honored God by refusing to run on a Sunday. Now, if only we could have that same kind of testimony. But he became a testimony to all of Scotland and all of the world during those Olympics. Even the Prince of Wales has said, look, can't you just set it aside for this one race? Couldn't you just set it aside for this one race? And it turns out, if you read a little bit about him and what he said, he, he said it turns out that the 400 meter was his best race after all. That that's what he was best suited for. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. He not only won the race, but broke the existing world record with a time of 47.6 seconds. And then he later brought people to Christ as a missionary in China. And then World War II, you remember Japan came into China. He ended up getting captured and put into an internment camp. And he he had a testimony. They said he never talked about anybody. He was there for people. He pointed them to Christ. He ended up dying in that camp. One rumor says that he had the opportunity to leave, but he refused to leave and let a pregnant woman go in his place. A man who has a testimony for God, a man that God can use, a man that God's not going to replace, a man that God's not going to set aside. And then for the last part here, look at chapter number three. I just want to show this to you. It goes on. It would be another message. But just this first verse, I want you to look at it. Because we have Samuel here who pops up in all of this. And he ministered before the Lord. He ministered. 
while these corrupt priests were stealing the sacrifice, putting themselves first, while they were sleeping with the women. It says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Now, I think you got, in some of your Bibles, it tells you about that precious. But precious is like gold. It was rare. When, when we get out of God's will, when, when your, your relationship with God is such that you have a seared conscience and you don't even take God's rebuke, and God will rebuke you in different ways. It may be, it may be during, during a sermon. It may be during a Bible study. It may be reading your Bible. Maybe somebody could just coming up and speaking directly to you. And if you ignore that rebuke, and said the word of the Lord was precious in those days. And you might get to wondering why every time you look at the Bible, you just don't see anything. Why isn't God talking to me? Why isn't God using me? I see some confusion. I don't know how to explain it any different. When we get out of God's will, when we get away from God and and God doesn't want to use us, you kind of get this dark vision. You kind of get this scales over your eyes when it comes to the things of God. And those times when he was speaking to your heart and it was so sweet and so beautiful. And then the other times when, when you've gotten away from God and you're living in sin, the things of God just seem like a book over sitting on the shelf. Just sitting over there on the corner. You know there's something in it, but it's not touching you. It's not doing you any good. It's not working in your heart. You know, God's word kind of works on your heart like the farmer works the ground, breaks it apart. He tills it and breaks the rocks out and he plants the seeds in there and those seeds begin to grow. You know, and those seeds may begin to grow in you being able to touch other people's lives or it may begin to grow and you seeing God work through your life and you begin to see things happen in your life. I'm not talking about a new car. I'm not talking about fame and fortune. I'm talking about God being able to use you. Y'all know that I don't preach that way. But when, when you're in God's will, you open that book, and there's an uh-oh or an old me, or there's an old Lord, and there's just praise coming from your lips. That's the relationship. How do you keep from being replaced? How do you keep from God putting you on the shelf, from being a castaway? You got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, number one. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you haven't gotten the first step. You can know all about the things of God like Eli did. They knew all about the instruments. They knew about what was supposed to take place. They knew the Levitical law probably, but they didn't know the God who gave all that to them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's the one mediator. Number two, when God shows you something, whether it's through his word or preaching, circumstances, how you react. And just remember the lack of conviction about something that you know God says to do does not mean permission. Lack of conviction does not mean permission. And number three, it wasn't a point, but I'm making a point. Honor God in everything that you do. Do everything as unto the Lord. This Maxine's going to play. If God's been speaking to your heart, 
I think he has. Let's stand. Let's take a moment to pray.